Podcast 015, Helen Atow on compost, veganic permaculture, and native plants. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, I think uh, I think it's going. It's going. All right, so I'm here with Helen Atow today. Um, say hi to the podcasters, Helen. Hello, podcasters. And um, I think we're going to start off talking about compost stuff. And I, I want to talk about compost stuff with Helen because I remember 15 years ago going to your farm, and you had the most massive composting operation I've ever seen on on a farm and it was it was incredibly per, uh, um, um, awesome uh, I, I remember that there were big long piles of compost now I've been to composting facilities mm-hmm. that I didn't care for their compost because it was mostly like okay how can we get rid of our industrial waste and push it off on the suckers whereas yours I felt was very much like we're going this, this is going to be our primary nutrition source for this farm. And I remember not only did you have massive piles of compost and you were exceptionally passionate about the ingredients that went into your compost, but you had like a laboratory complete with all these vials of different grades of compost. And I remember that you had like a fish tank full of goo where you were growing the just the right kind of microbials to have in your compost, and and then you had this massive document. It was like the one that you handed me, I think, was 50, 60 pages, but then um, I've since learned that you made that even bigger still. <laughs> so this is my memory. So, so first I want to kind of like talk about that for just a few minutes, the what, the what you once had in your massive compost production thing. Well, I used to use compost as my sole means of soil amendment for for the system of vegetable production, organic vegetable production that I did. And and I've been on a long roundabout road with compost. I started when I was in my 20s and I got out of graduate school and my second job was with a large farm, 200 acres, many, many different kinds of crops, vegetables and fruits. And they wanted to transition from an integrated pest management program to an organic program. And so we created a whole bunch of compost for the field and compost for... I I just want to interrupt. I think a lot of people won't know what integrated pest management is. Ah, uh, IPM, integrated pest management, is where you have people out field scouting and um, you look at how many pests you actually have in the field and you decide whether or not you have enough pests to be a problem and whether or not the pests you have are going to be visible, but not enough to actually limit your crop. So integrated pest management is a way of decreasing pesticide use. Some people call it integrated pesticide management. <laughs> so uh, anyway. They, they typically use about 20 times less you know, pesticides. Exactly. Yeah. And so this farm was already decreasing pesticide use, but they wanted to go to certified organic. So we did very well in the field, I have to tell you, with the compost operation that we did. And, and I did it very analytically and figured out exactly how much nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, what the pH was, all of the things. 
for a good balanced compost. I did the same thing in creating the compost for 200 container tomato plants, and they were going to be in five-gallon plastic container bags. And we thought that that way we could manage the disease in this new transition organic system. And what actually happened is I put all this compost, and it had very good nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, and a pretty good pH. And <laughs> about three weeks after planting the uh, tomatoes, 90% uh, of them died, and I went home and cried, and then I tried to figure out what had happened, and I went back the next day and dug out the tomatoes, and it smelled like household cleanser, like ammonia, and so what had happened is that the nutrient level of the compost was okay. I've since learned a little bit more how to evaluate whether a compost is actually high quality or low quality, and I realized one of my mistakes there. But the main mistake was that the compost wasn't finished. It was still decomposing, and these ammonia-solubilizing bacteria were just going crazy in this anaerobic, or no oxygen, very little oxygen, plastic container. So I've since learned that the kind of compost that you make, the quality of your compost affects your crop. And hence, when I got my own farm, I was neurotic about making sure the quality of my compost, particularly for any containerized plants, anything I used in the nursery system where I grew my tomato seedlings for transplant or where I grew native plants, that all had to be a certain quality. And there were three main things that were key. Well, before we go to the three main things, okay. I've got, I got two things I want to bring up just really quick to, to counter what you just said. The first is, is that how important it is that innovation is built on tiers. <laughs> I've had lots of tears and lots of innovation. <laughs> there you go. There you go. The, the second thing is, is that um, <clears throat> you you were using. Um, uh, and I, I don't want people to be too concerned about like if they go out and they make their own compost that they're going to kill all their garden, <laughs> as what happened to you there. And so I want to mitigate that a little bit by by letting people know that you used a lot of compost. It was probably too much. Um, even even I mean, you were kind of pushing the limits for how much compost you should use, and 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 the reason why I'm saying this is because I've heard this story like three times before already, so I I know why it it, it did that. Yes. But and then the third thing is that we were we were in a in an anaerobic plastic container that was not allowing much oxygen. Had had we had more oxygen, we might have gotten away with more. So naturally, everything you've done since you've never used any more plastic. I've not used plastic containers. <laughs> no growing bags. Well, I thought I saw plastic containers at your uh, at your farmer's market thing where you had the, oh, must have been my mistake. What was I thinking? Those, those aren't what I mean by the plastic. <laughs> oh, container. okay. All right. Those things. Yes. Those things. All right. Well, all right. <clears throat> so anyway, you were saying, I cut you off when you were talking about three things. Yeah, but I think that was a, a, a good point that, um, that when you're making compost at home, you're usually going to be putting it in an outside situation where there's going to be sun and rain and microorganisms. And so and air, lots of air. Lots and lots of oxygen. So you, you don't have to be afraid. When you're doing something like a container planting on your patio, then you should be more careful. Right. But otherwise, yes, any organic matter is good for the soil. Some is better. Some is going to inhibit.
especially seedling germination uh, or young plants. And uh, all of it, in the end, is going to add some kind of carbon or nutrients to the soil. So I, I, I want to impress upon people here in about five or ten minutes that it's like well, you, when you make your homemade compost, you really can't go wrong. It's, yeah. it's really easy, and, and you would have to like be doing something really wonky, like putting it in a plastic bag, to, right. to, to make it not work. Absolutely. Okay. I think that's true. And, and that being said, I think that there are three main things uh, that I, I think are key to good quality compost after making compost for the last 30 years. And the first one is a good balance of carbon to nitrogen. So you want to have, number one, more than one compost ingredient. You want to have a diversity of compost ingredients, and you want to balance your high carbon materials with your high nitrogen materials. I'm going to have to ask you to you know, help people understand, because I think most people are going to be like, what carbon to nitrogen, we, we just okay. totally lost them. And now they're turning the podcast off. They're moving on to some music by some skinny blonde woman. Brown and dry. <laughs> Any material that's brown and dry, like straw or leaves, is a high-carbon material. Any material that's green and succulent, like grass clippings or, or clover clippings or, or green leaves, is higher in nitrogen. Poop is brown. Poop is brown but not dry, and poop is high in nitrogen. So any animal residue, whether it's a dead animal or, or uh, manure from an animal, that's all high in nitrogen. So, you know, my thinking is, is that there's tons and tons of ingredients, and a lot of them are almost just like right at this, because when we say ratios, there's a number that we use, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and it's always 30 to 1, and, and it's 30 carbons to 1 nitrogen. And um, uh, and you don't have to worry about that. But I think that the the simple way to go for it that I think of it is is that you just start piling stuff up. And if it's if it's not breaking down, you don't have enough nitrogen. You don't have enough stinky stuff. And then if it's uh, uh, if it's stinking, then you have too much stinky stuff. And then you you add your um, like your some sawdust or some straw or some le some dried leaves. Um, and then and then you're right as rain. That's all there is to it. I, I think that's one way of looking at it, but you can also look up on the Internet. You can look in all kinds of composting uh, manuals, and they'll tell you what the general carbon to nitrogen ratio of different materials are. But I really do think it's a pretty good, pretty good um, rule of thumb to say mix 50% brown and dry with 50% green and succulent, and manure counts as green and succulent, and, and mix that up. Table and scraps? Table scraps count as green and succulent. Yeah. They're, not, they're not brown and dry, or they're not dry. And, and then the second thing that goes along with that is just as important is to make sure that you have coarse and fine material. So coarse means that there's lots of space between each, each particle of the material. So uh, wood chips, composted wood chips, uh, uh, branches, twigs, um, uh, corn stalks, those are all coarse materials so that when you pack them on top of one another, there's lots of spaces in between them so that lots of oxygen, oxygen or air can get in. 
And then a fine material is something that, that packs down really compact and there's not much air in it. So if you make a pile of grass clippings, that's going to be a, a real fine material and you're not going to have much air in it. And it's going to go funky and it stink. It gets really stinky, exactly. Yeah. So you want to mm. balance your coarse materials with your fine materials. You want to have grass clippings and you want to have things like corn stalks or, or I used to grow a lot of um, Brussels sprouts and so I'd use the Brussels sprout stuff for example, in my compost, or broccoli, or something like that. Well, I think the important thing is, is that you can make it crazy sophisticated. I mean, you, can, you could probably devote your life to coming up with awesome compost. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you just take whatever you got and throw it in a well, I mean, this is what we're going to end up with, I think, later on. Throw it in a pile, then, then um, that, that actually works. And, it's, and you're fine. And it, it might be a little annoying. And it might not be the best. But it's still way better than nothing. So anyway, you were going off onto three things, and I interrupted you. And the third one is just to make sure that you get oxygen into the pile. And, and you can get really sophisticated and turn it all the time, or you can come up with really easy, low-maintenance ways of making sure oxygen gets into the pile. And uh, some of the things I've done and some of the things I've seen are taking uh, – um, like a culvert pipe or a PVC pipe and making holes all the way through it and throwing that into the pile either upright or on the side and then air just comes in both ends and goes into the middle of the pile and you never have to turn it. So that, that's one really cool option that I've seen and one that I've played with a little bit. If you just have a pile of, of things that are decomposing from scratch, meaning they were you know, they were green leaves and straw and all kinds of materials, and you throw them in one big pile, you'll generate a lot of heat and a lot of microbial activity, and they'll use up the oxygen fast. If you just get a pile of manure, for example, from the stable, and you've got manure plus sawdust or manure plus sawdust and, and straw, that one is already decomposing, and you can pretty much not turn that as much and not worry about that as much, I think. <clears throat> so, um, have we covered enough about your your massive, amazing, super duper composting system of time gone by? I, mean, I think so. Okay, and and then um, um, and then I seem to remember that as time passed, you started to phase that out. I did. About ten years ago, I got old and lazy, and I decided not to work so hard, and I started growing my own fertilizer in the field and allowing that to decompose and uh, started applying less and less compost and uh, got to the point where I was applying, I'd started out with 10 tons per acre compost in my early years and got down to about two tons per acre compost. You have to drive the tractor and the manure spreader pretty fast, by the way, to only put out <laughs> two tons per acre. Um, it was uh, not... No bumps in the field then. You have to be really careful. Yeah, you're, you're driving pretty fast. Uh, but, but I went to this, uh, this living mulch system where I would grow green and succulent in the field and just mow it down and let it do its own thing. I'm way more into growing my own fertilizer than doing compost. And, and just as an aside, I used to add a lot of compost tea to plants, which is a whole nother topic. That, that could be another 45-minute discussion. And uh, about the same time that I stopped making so much compost, I stopped uh, adding compost tea. I do want to say that the one thing that did happen is that 
as I was adding compost over the years and adding green manures and taking care of my soil, the backbone of my soil, the framework of my soil got so much better that I didn't have to do all of these other techniques that I really had good soil fertility. So the only time that I might work very hard on on compost and some of these other soil amendments, maybe even using compost tea, is if I started a new place with terrible soil. But as my soil improved, I didn't have to work so hard. So, boy, compost tea, I, I, I think that's a great topic in itself. And, and um, I, I, boy, it's like I got six other things to add all of a sudden. With compost tea, I, I kind of feel like compost tea is truly awesome stuff, especially when they do the aeration and things like that. And they, but on the other hand, I, I kind of feel like um, the, the value of it, does it outweigh the amount of work that's, that's involved? And for a lot of people, I think that uh, I, I would advocate a much lazier approach and, and, and how you go about doing things. I think if you're going to spend a lot of time on something, as well as expense and materials, I mean, I've seen people spending thousands of dollars on these compost tea operations. And um, I, I, while I do think that the product is, is good and great, it takes time to apply, it takes time to futz with, it, takes to, it, it, you know, it, it just takes a lot. I don't think, it's my opinion, which I'm going to get an army of people angry at me to say this, I don't think it's worth it. I would much rather spend my time and effort doing hugu culture or, you know, some other kind of thing that's going to um, be longer lasting than, than do that. But I don't know. What's, what's your feeling on compost tea along the lines of its value? I think I go back to what I said previously, that in the beginning when my soil fertility was not built up and I didn't know as much, I'm... I got good benefit out of compost tea. And the same thing out of my compost. I, I definitely needed it. As I built up my soil organic matter, so I had a good skeletal framework for my soil fertility, I didn't have to work so hard, and hence I didn't need to make such good quality compost, and I didn't need to apply the compost tea. And my yields were as good or, or better as I got to the point where I added very little, well, the last few years I added no compost. I stopped using manure and just used the green succulent cover crops. But now you had a different reason for that. I do have a different reason for that, yes, indeed. I think that different reason is fascinating. Uh, do you? I think it's important. Okay. I think it's important to share now. All right. <laughs> I started doing veganic gardening and farming I had been a vegetarian for many years. My farm was moving more and more in the direction of what we called conservation farming, and we were allowing birds and butterflies and all kinds of insects, and we started getting other animals, too, into our field, and we started trying to figure out how we could keep all things alive and growing within the land that we stewarded, and hence, I developed more interest in the veganic or vegan way of, of looking at the world where you have a willingness to share your existence with all other organisms out there. You know, I thought you were going to go in a different direction. <clears throat> now, I think that the veganic thing is an important thing, and we're going to get to that in a little bit. 
but I was kind of thinking that you had to get to the level, the point where you're talking about, because of every, every time you add compost or any kind of manure, then you're adding um, a variety of nutrients, and the three we always talk about are NPK. Right. And the N is always going to fade. Yeah. And the P and K, not so much. So I did start to get uh, uh, an excessive buildup of potassium. And my pH started uh, going up. So one of the other reasons to decrease manure was to decrease the potassium levels that were get getting high in the soil, uh, excessively high, and to uh, try and keep the pH from going up so much. What happens to your crops when you get high levels of potassium? Well, it depends on what the other nutrients are doing, but if you have an imbalance of potassium and nitrogen, for example, uh, or potassium and calcium, you can see deficiencies in those nutrients. So I raised uh, commercially uh, a lot of tomatoes, and I began to see more blossom end rot when we had uh, excessive potassium. It was getting in the way of calcium uptake. So when I had, I, I had excessive potassium levels at my farm, too. And, and the mm -hmm. thing that I was experiencing was is that I had a lot of, I had uh, probably about three quarters of the different kinds of plants I tried to plant would just not grow. Mm -hmm. they, they would just sit there and hang out, little tiny plants. Or if I would transplant a larger plant, it seems like it got plenty of leaves. It did everything fine. It just would not grow up. <laughs> it would just sit there, put out leaves, and it would seem like it would be, I'm totally cool being three feet tall. You're a tree. You're supposed to be 30 feet tall. Nope, nope, I'm good right here. It's all good. <laughs> and, and it turned out after it was, it was toxic levels of uh, actually PNK. So, um, well, anyway, I, I, I want to cover a couple other things about compost real quick before we get into the, the veganic stuff. And, and so <clears throat> just wrapping up about quality. There are different qualities of compost. Yeah. And and that's and so one is is that you could have a compost that's not quite done yet. Yeah. And that's what you t you talked about at the beginning. Right. And then the other is you could have a compost that's that's probably even too far done. I, I would think like it's it's so far done it's a powder and if you blow on it it might just totally disappear. The the level of nutrients in compost can can really diminish. Yeah. And where does it go? It basically, it can be tied up or you can lose it to the air through or denitrification and uh, it can leach out. And basically you end up with, with, I mean you can compost things so far that you end up with basically an ash. And, yeah, so, it's, it, and so the idea is, is you want to get to this point where it's like composted far enough that it's, that it's not too hot for your plants. And then, um, but it, and at the same time, it's not down to that ash point yet. You want to, because you lose a lot of the nitrogen, and the nitrogen is the most precious thing. Right. Um, and you can lose a lot of that to the air. So you want to quick get it out there, get it to working for you before it's gone, kind of a thing. Right. So, um, and then of course, uh, the thing that I remember 15 years ago when visiting your farm. Um, was how you were very passionate about how you never wanted your compost to get hotter than a certain temperature. And maybe you want to talk about just, just a real quick thing about that. Well, I learned to compost uh, from, from several people, but I took a course from uh, the Lubkies from Austria 
who do controlled microbial composting, and their focus is on the microbial activity, the soil food web in your, in your compost pile. And if you have too high a composting temperature, then you're going to kill off all the soil microbes. You also, of course, are killing your plant pathogens and your weed seeds, and so a lot of people like to have high compost temperatures to kill off weed seeds. And uh, I chose microbes over, over no weeds. So I went with a cooler temperature. Right. I remember you were trying to keep the good guys around while right. killing off the bad guys. Right. That seemed to be, and it seemed like there were a variety of different microbes that, it's like you had lists of microbes. These are the guys where they don't die off until it gets to 160. And then, the, and then here's all this list of these bad guys. And they yeah. all kick it at 150. Right. So it's kind of like, you know, trying to get that sweet spot, whereas most of us would just compost, we have no idea what the temperature is, and it still works out. And here's the interesting thing, too, that, again, that was uh, 15 years ago, and I did a lot more work in, in microbial ecology or trying to find out about the soil food web and what they were doing and how to encourage them. And I realized that there were a couple of different approaches. And what I did, finally, was say, I'm just going to create habitat and they will come. So add organic residues to the soil on a regular basis instead of every spring, which is what I used to do as an organic farmer, tilled in all this compost or all this manure and green manure crops and then went with it. But if you look at a native system or a, uh, a prairie system, a natural system, for example, what and try to mimic it, what you see is a constant and regular addition of organic residue. So once I started going in that direction, I found that I didn't have to worry about adding microbes back to the soil with my compost. They, they basically were there, they stayed, and they liked the habitat. And hence, I don't tell very many people this, but with all my clover living mulches that I use, I haven't done any seed inoculation probably in the last 15 years because I didn't need to. The rhizobium were in the soil. I wouldn't recommend that for everyone. When I tell people to, to do cover crops or living mulches, I recommend adding rhizobium because your soil may not be built up. But once you finally do build your soil up, then I'm not a big proponent of adding a whole bunch of It wouldn't make any difference. Anymore. Yes. Well, I, I, I haven't done enough studies myself, and other people have done studies and say that it does make a difference, but I think where it really makes any kind of difference is if you've got a, a, a disturbed, infertile soil that you're starting with, it's a new farm, a new garden, a new revegetation project, then you might add all of these other things, a, a compost high in microbes, because the soil food web is really important. But I think we can get there without buying a lot of things or making a lot of stuff. Let's talk about <clears throat> home composting versus commercial composts. So now the thing that I've told people a lot is that the crappiest home compost is always far superior than the best commercial compost. And, and the primary concern that I have has to do with persistent herbicides in the commercial compost. Um, and, and usually, nearly every commercial compost, there are going to be exceptions. I mean, I think there's probably maybe 1% of the commercial composts that are out there 
that are going to be of a high enough quality, but they're probably charging something like 10 or $20 a pound for it, that are, that are going to not have the persistent herbicides, and they're going to meet my ideas of quality that you can get at a home compost. Um, <clears throat> but I, I think for the most part, um, commercial composts are a means for uh, different entities to be able to get rid of their industrial waste. And usually it's wood chips. You know, they've got tons of wood chips. They need to get rid of the wood chips. And, and they're going to typically be not that big of a deal in the garden, although there are some problems with them. And, and, um, but, but wood chips are typically what you don't have in home compost. But there's other things that end up in commercial compost that I'm, I frankly don't feel comfortable with. How, how do you feel about home compost versus commercial compost? Well, I think that's a huge question. I've seen some terrible examples of home compost that produce plant toxins. And I've seen some really good examples of commercial compost. So I don't think I could go as far as to say that the uh, home compost is always better than the commercial compost. But I definitely share your concern about uh, herbicides in commercial compost. That, I think, is becoming really prevalent in, in this country, anyway. And, and so you have to be real careful about where that comes from. You have to be careful when you do your own compost. Here in western Montana, when I was an extension agent, one of our biggest problems every summer was people who had gotten manure from folks who had fed their animals hay that had been treated with herbicide, and it, it uh, persisted through the animal and into the manure and into the compost they made and put on their gardens, and they had serious problems, distorted, terrible plants. So uh, if you can get good compost, good quality materials for your compost, yeah, I think that, that it's great to make it at home, always, for many different reasons. And self-sufficiency and sustainability rank right up there. On the other hand, I think that uh, there are some good commercial quality composts out there. So there's, <clears throat> there's some commercial compost out there that you feel comfortable with. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I think that, that there are some that are doing a good job of trying to keep herbicide-laced materials out of their compost and are trying to balance the compost well with the, the high carbon, brown and dry, high nitrogen, green and succulent materials and trying to make sure that they turn the compost properly and that it's aerobic. So yeah, I think there, there are some good ones out there. I do think you have to search and ask a lot of questions to find out, number one, what, what materials are in the compost and how have they made it. So <clears throat> along these lines, in order to talk more about home composting, I'm going to present you with a question. I mean, I, I bet about when the warmer months come along, I bet you I get one phone call a month from some a family member or a friend or somebody like that, somebody who has never done compost before, and they're and usually it goes like this. Hi, I'm at Costco right now. I'm staring at a composter that costs $150, and I want to know: is it worth it? Is it a good deal? Should I buy this? Because I'm thinking maybe I should start composting. Should I buy this compost? Do you, do you get calls like that? Do you get? <clears throat> I have. Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be like, okay, you're an expert at this, and then you get a call from somebody who's got 10 years of experience with composting, and they're going to ask you about fine-tuning it. But here's somebody who's starting at 
ground zero. They weren't going to compost before they walked into Costco, but now they're staring at a composter and they're thinking, maybe I should do this. So I think basically that uh, you can do it cheaply without a compost maker in general. I guess if you're in a real small lot on an urban, in an urban situation, maybe you might consider something that contained your compost and, and uh, made the whole operation smaller. But in general, it doesn't really take very much to dig a small hole in the ground and make a pile. And it gets back to the, the three things that I talked about and add one other, which is, is pile size. You, you can go, well, actually, even there, I, I think I can, can be flexible. In general, to get the heat that you want built up in a compost pile while the microbes are breaking things down, usually they figure you want a pile of about five foot tall. On the other hand, you can go exactly the opposite way, the way Roost Out did, for example, and you can take all of the materials that you would compost and throw it out on your garden over the winter, not while the plants are growing so much, but over the winter, in the fall, early spring, on top of a high carbon material like straw or, or composted leaves, uh, something brown and dry. And because you've got sunlight and rain and lots and lots of oxygen, if you don't pile them very high, if you just pile them in a couple of inches, you'll get composting there too. It's just like what happens in the prairie when, when a cow goes walking over the grass and poops on it. Well, that's going to compost. It's going to turn into compost. It may take some time, but it's going to turn into compost thanks to the sunlight and the rain and the microorganisms and all of the, the warmth from a summer. So usually what I advise people <clears throat> that are just getting started in composting is it's like, well, you know, it's, it's really hard to screw it up. You just take your kitchen scraps, any twigs you got, any whatever you've got, whatever it is, is organic matter that you have, and then just put it, you know, pick a spot that's way out back, that's far away, and, and just pile it there. And then the only thing that I, su I suggest, if you're going to spend money on something, go out and get um, a bale of straw and a way to keep the bale of straw dry. And then if it ever starts to smell, if your compost pile ever smells, throw a little straw on it. And, and then I have a bucket. I just use a five-gallon bucket or a three-gallon bucket with a plate on it inside. And um, uh, basically what I try to tell them is, is don't, you don't have to worry about it at all. Just throw your stuff onto the pile. It will eventually break down. And granted, I, I acknowledge some of it could be anaerobic, and I'm not really too worried about it, especially if they're throwing some carbons in there along the way. Um, it, it could be a colder compost. But still, it's, it's, I, I think it's still going to end up being, no, you know, no matter how much, like if they never turn the pile, I think they're still going to be ahead of the game for most commercial composts in, in a variety of ways. Um, and and uh, I mean, they're going to build the organic matter on their, on their land just using you know, kitchen, strap, kitchen scraps from stuff that they bought at the store. Um, so, and then when it comes to lawn clippings, I, I really should be leaving those out on the lawn as you as There you, you go. Know. <laughs> and um, when it comes to like you do a little pruning or some branches are blown off of your trees, Throw those in the compost pile. If, if it's big and bulky, take some pruners to them and clip them up into smaller bits. 
Um, and and then you know, and then of course, like you're saying, you get air in it. Well, that's a layer. You have an air layer in there now. Mm-hmm. Most of the people that I have visited their homes and they have a compost pile. It's like they throw all their kitchen scraps on it, and the pile just never gets to any size to use for anything. They just keep throwing stuff on there, and it just keeps disappearing. So it's like. Um, you, I mean, you want to talk about using it on your garden or something like that, and I think that that's a, a, a great place to use it. But I don't think they – most of these people never the – gar- the, the compost pile never gets to be big enough that they can use it for anything. So it's just a place to make better use of the stuff that you were going to be throwing out into the dump. So for these people who I told this to, and then, and then they come to you, and then you say, oh, Paul, he's such a screwball – don't listen to him. Here's what you really want to know. Well, actually, I had that kind of pile myself. So I was out making really heavy-duty compost for my vegetable field and for my nursery, but I have kitchen scraps. I have a lot of kitchen scraps uh, because I eat a lot of vegetables. And so I had that little pile, too. I had a little dugout hole, and I basically never really used it for anything, but I would compost my kitchen scraps. So an in-between way of doing that, in-between my major composting for the commercial vegetable production and my basically just getting rid of, in an ecological way, my, my, my kitchen scraps would be to maybe add a little bit of material and, and a more high-carbon material to my my kitchen scraps. So maybe if I had more time, uh, I would have raked up some leaves. And I would have made a base of leaves and a base of pruning material. I might do a little fall pruning, um, put some branches in there. And then that would be a lovely basis for kitchen scraps all winter. And I might mix it together once in a while. And then I would have compost that I'd feel really comfortable putting in my garden, tilling it in, or not tilling it in and putting it around as a mulch for fruit trees and shrubs. So the important thing is, is that I need everybody who's listening to the podcast to go and write it down, that what I said, Helen endorsed. (laughs) (laughs) I I believe that's what you said, isn't it? I I think that's true. It it took you a while to get around to it, but I think that's what you said. With with some caveats, but yes, (laughs) a a, a, a caveated endorsement. Okay. All right. All right. Good enough. And, and and then uh, to wrap up this segment on composting, I, I just want to give a shout-out for Ruth Stout. I mean, when was it she wrote that book, like in the 20s? A long time ago. My mother gave it to me. So uh, I just kind of think that Ruth Stout's tech. I mean, I love Ruth Stout's technique. I use Ruth Stout's techniques. I always – so whenever I get to a new project, the first thing I'm doing is I'm trying to source moldy alfalfa. Mm-hmm. And, and it has to be alfalfa. Oh, yeah. Uh, because if you get grass hay – then there's a good chance that that was sprayed with some sort of herbicide. It can be. But yeah. the herbicides that they'd use would be a broadleaf herbicide, and alfalfa is a broadleaf, so they right. can't spray it on the alfalfa. They can't spray it on alfalfa, absolutely. It's and I've talked, I've talked to some, alf- some people who raise alfalfa, and they love chemicals. They love putting chemicals on everything. I bet they put chemicals on their cereal in the morning. <laughs> they love chemicals just that much, and yet they never, ever put any chemicals on alfalfa. 
There's just nothing that they can think of. There's nothing that they can come up with. So it's chemical-free. Yep, I agree. So, and it's also a, a, one of the few hays that has a, a high nitrogen. Most of the other hay is, is higher in the carbon. So alfalfa is a really nice, nice balance for making compost. It's, uh, it's, it's got the, in fact, if you're going to make compost with it, because, of course, my thinking is the root stout technique. I'm you thinking primarily for a mulch. Absolutely. It's a complete great with mulch. fertilizer built in. Absolutely. Um, but my understanding is, is that alfalfa hay has the perfect 30 to 1 carbon to nitrogen ratio. It's ready to go. It's compost. Just add water. <laughs> I, I, I think it's even better than that. I think it's a, a, lower, it's a lower carbon and a higher nitrogen. I'd have to look that up, but, yeah, I think it's a really good one. So, I, I well, now, 30 to 1 is where you make your hottest compost. Because now if you start adding more carbons, so um, uh, then, then, well, carbons being the, the, um, the straws, the wood chips, the things like that, you start adding more carbons, then it, you get a cooler compost. It doesn't compost as fast. And then if you um, reduce the carbons and have more nitrogens, then um, it doesn't compost exactly any faster. It just gets smellier. You have a lot of more denitrification. Well, actually, that uh, I disagree with. Oh, really? Okay. I usually go a 20 to 30 to 1. And for my composting, where I'm going to where I'm going to turn it, mm -hmm. when I did before I got lazy, I would would definitely go with a, a 20 to one carbon to nitrogen ratio. So a little bit higher nitrogen. Hotter. Yeah, a little Hot. higher nitrogen materials. And I would turn it, and I could get compost in, you know, six to 10 weeks. For a while, I owned one of those compost tumblers. Ah. Where, where I would go out, and I would, I would take my coffee out, and I would go turn it, and mm -hmm. turn the barrel five times. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I'd stick my thermometer in it once mm -hmm. a week and stuff like that. And, and, uh, and it did work. It got, I, I mean, it basically it got really hot, hit like 150, 160 right away, mm -hmm. and it would hold that for a while. And then about day 25, day 30, it would cool way down, and, um, and then it would be plenty done, plenty done up. It was so fast. Mm -hmm. um, I, and so I was happy with it that way, but then after a while I just stopped using it because, yeah, you get, after you've been there, done that, it's kind of like, you know what's easier? You just leave it in the damn pile, and then, <laughs> and then you come back and use it when you want. And, and another thing is, is that on a farm, on my farm, I didn't have a compost pile. I ended up not having a compost pile at all. And the reason is is that I, um, I had no materials. I had nothing to make a compost pile with, not a thing. All the kitchen scraps went to the pigs or the chickens. Um, Any time that I had extra branches or something, I just, I just clipped them up right at the tree. Um, uh, all of the animals were in portable shelters. So whenever there was any poop, I moved the shelter. As soon as there was getting to be any kind of buildup of poop, move the shelter. Sometimes if they were wintering, I might do the thing where it was um, the deep bedding, where there would be poop, and I'd throw down a bunch of straw, and they'd poop on that, and I'd throw down a bunch more straw, and it would get, be like a foot deep, and then I'd move the shelter. But still, I'm not making a compost pile. There was just nothing. I had nothing with which to make a compost And I kind of felt like eliminating the need to have a compost pile or eliminating all the materials with which to make a compost pile in I got to thinking that that was actually a good sign. That's a sign of a full farm ecosystem. If you have a full farm ecosystem, you can't make a compost pile because you don't have any materials for it. I think a lot of people are looking at that as, as one way of thinking. Sure. So 
now that I've gotten validation for my techniques from the goddess of the soil, Helen Atow, then I think it's a good time to, t to move into our next topic. Um, I'm going to, I want to start talking about veganism. So just being a vegan and why, why do people do it? Now, of course, I think I have to say that when it comes to veganism, and first I think it's good to, to separate what is the difference between vegetarianism and veganism. And, and so, Helen, uh, you as a vegan, perhaps you'd like to let people know what's the difference between the two. Well, a vegetarian, of course, uh, doesn't eat meat, and a vegan doesn't eat anything, well, doesn't eat meat, but also doesn't eat anything that has been uh, any animal product or, or a product that has been been created by other organisms, like honey, for example. Vegans won't, won't use honey. They won't use gelatin. Um, uh, no milk products uh, because animals, well, you know what actually happens when, when to get milk. There are, there are animals that don't, uh, don't get the milk, like the baby cows and the baby um, anything that you're getting milk from. So, uh, so vegans don't uh, utilize milk and they don't eat eggs. So a little more strict vegetarianism based on, on concern for animals having a good lifestyle. So now, of course, there's a lot of people that you hear things like, uh, was it, is it ovo? Vegetarianism, or I, I can't remember, lacto, ovo, right, right, yeah, I, yeah. you know, and basically they're saying, well, I make an exception for the eggs, or right. some people are it's like they do vegan, but then they eat the fish. And I heard an interesting one that I, years ago that I really liked. It was so fun. They called themselves a freegan, and the idea was is that they would only eat um, vegan food unless it was free. And, and so they would basically they're saying they're not going to spend their money on because their oh, mission oh, is I see, I they wouldn't they would not spend their money on food that's um, uh, an animal product they would not spend money on animal products unless someone gave it to them unless somebody you know because like you go to somebody you go to a friend's house and it's like hey I put some steaks on the bar before you because I heard you were coming so I went and got steak and so it's like do you tell your friend I'm a vegan you know. Stick your steaks where the sun don't shine, you know, or do you sit down and enjoy a meal with your friend? When you said freegan, I thought you meant that uh, that uh, you didn't eat any animal animals or animal products, but that if you had free animals, you might consider eating their eggs, or or as long as there was lots, <laughs> lots of freedom involved. I suppose that that's a, a, a philosophy. I, I met one woman who had a really interesting uh, position. It was like she was a, a vegan. And the only time she would eat meat is if it was meat that she had harvested from the wild herself. And so a big part of what her concern was is, is how animals were harvested, that they were being harvested in a less than respectful manner. So she felt like if they had a, a wild, if they lived in the wild, and then she, she not only um, hunted it herself and killed it and then conducted the harvest and the butcher herself, mm -hmm. then that was acceptable which I, I thought that was a, another fascinating approach. Now, um, so now I think it's a really good time to talk about what I think I should throw in one to the mix here. And that is that in my experience, if you, if you go around to certain circles and you, you, the people that are the health nuts and stuff like that and they talk about vegan, they have one idea what veganism means. But then you go and you, 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 um, go and you work in a corporate office or you, 
you are in town, and it's like not these circles. I encounter a lot of people who uh, insist on eating a, a vegan diet, and I would have to say that half the vegans that I've ever met, and I've met a lot of vegans, hundreds, mm-hmm. hundreds of vegans, half the vegans that I've ever met believe that their vegan diet includes Diet Coke, um, a variety of uh, like cookies like Oreos, um, you know, a variety of snack foods <laughs> at the grocery store that I think that the more health conscious vegans would never touch. So like candy is part of the vegan diet. In fact, a lot of them that I've met, they don't eat, it, it, it's almost dominantly Diet Coke and <laughs> candy. Is, is, you know, their vegan diet. So um, I think that, you know, we need, to, we need to, therefore, when we're going to talk about veganism, I think it's important to, to bring that into the mix and, like, let's, let's try and, and classify these two groups. But for all of these people, I think that the, the reason why they choose to do it is, is often very similar. And what, so, so Helen, what do you think is the reason most people do veganism, and is it any different from the reason why you are a vegan? Well, most of the vegans I know, and I wouldn't say that I know hundreds of them at all. Uh, I don't know lots and lots of vegans, but most of the vegans I know basically are vegans for the same reason that I am, and that has to do with a more spiritual approach, I suppose, uh, a way of looking at the rights of all organisms to live and that my right isn't any greater than any other organism. So most of the vegans I know are care about insects and animals and birds and that's why they do it. And, and I have to say that one of the reasons that I'm a vegan is that I don't like to kill anything and so I wanted to eat what I produced on my farm, and since I certainly wasn't going to kill anything, I was really good at um, producing vegetables and fruits. Not so good at grains, uh, but I did produce them. I mainly traded for grains and uh, and beans. And so uh, while I was killing the vegetables and the fruits and the beans, I suppose, pulling them up from uh, from the soil, I uh, I felt like I could do that. And it was really important for me to eat what I grow. And I can't kill anything, so it wasn't, there wasn't going to be meat. But uh, no diet Pepsi, no candy, <laughs> because I wasn't able to grow that, uh, at least on the farm in Montana. Now, maybe in other states, maybe Florida <laughs> can grow Pepsi. I'm not sure. <laughs> the Pepsi tree. Yeah, I, don't, I you know, haven't spent a lot of time in the southern U.S. It could happen, I suppose. As, uh, yeah, they, they pour the aspartame on the roots, perhaps. Um, uh, so have you, have you read Pollan's work in this space, The Omnivore's Dilemma? Yes, vegans are more evolved. So I, I, I really like the way that, that he presented it. I think, I think that he put vegans on a very high pedestal, which I respected. I thought that was really good, and that he, he traveled the path himself. And he found it, and this, hence the word uh, dilemma. It was, it was hard to, to, you know, to choose between one versus the other. And so then, of course, it comes down to the point of um, if you're going, I mean, basically choosing to be a vegan is like I, I'm a higher-thinking individual. I choose to be a vegan to be more evolved. I don't 
have to be a savage. I don't have to give in to what everybody else is doing. I don't have to give in to you know uh, the, the, the grunting and whatnot that comes with another choice. Well, if I'm going to be educated and smart and I'm going to do the right thing, what is that which is good and right and decent to the other creatures to the rest of the world? A thinking, caring individual. What is right? And so then uh, this is the basis for being more evolved in a vegan diet. I'm going to choose to not kill other creatures. And, um, and as he's um, traveling the vegan path, then he does research on, because of course the food that he's buying comes from the grocery store, and he's buying it organic because that's important to him. And then he visits the farmers that do this, and he finds out that they're um, plowing the fields so many times a year to fight the weeds so that they can do organic without any you know, herbicides. And that's when he finds out that each time that they till the soil that, that they do kill a whole bunch of animals. And so it's kind of like, well, okay, if you, if you raise the food yourself, then you can know how many times you're tilling or not tilling. And, and you can be cautious of the animals and you can, you know, live your vegan life to a higher standard of killing fewer animals while growing your vegetables or, you know, the, the food that you eat. But when you buy it from a grocery store, you don't have that control. And so, and it's not like it comes with a label that says, by the way, we tiptoed around the birds and the voles and the moles. Well, actually, there, there is a, a veganic label now. You can buy veganic crops, veganic veganic vegetables and fruits. Oh, really? I, yeah. Are they here in Missoula? I have not seen them in Missoula, but I, on my website, uh, which is veganicpermaculture.com, I have a PowerPoint I just did on, uh, on veganic farming, and it starts out with uh, the veganic label that, that uh, you can get both in the United States and in Canada. So there's a label for this. Yeah. And so this is, this is the first I've heard of it. Yeah, I'll show you the label. It's kind of a pretty label. I, and, and Europe, too. There, there is a veganic label in, in Europe, and definitely in Canada and in the U.S. And now this covers this very issue that I'm bringing up, to say that these, that, that these crops were grown and harvested in such a way that, you know, I, I think it would be possible to grow and harvest something in such a way to say that we kill like a thousand times less animals. I mean, I think so. it, it, you still get to the point where it's like if you're going to pull that carrot out of the ground, there's a, there's there's probably a million little microorganisms that died from that. That's that's true. And and so there's there's not much you can do about that. I mean, I you know there's also this uh, we were talking about this earlier. I think they're called fruitarians, where the only thing that they'll eat is fruit that has already fallen off of the tree, but they will not eat a carrot because of all the microorganisms that are killed when you pull the carrot out. Now, that's my understanding. I could be wrong about a lot of this stuff. But, um, I, and you haven't heard of it. I don't know. Yeah. So, <clears throat> but wow, that's amazing. I mean, I would think, I would think that they could get crazy-ass money for that. I actually don't know about how much, I don't know about that. Because <laughs> I would think there's a lot of vegans that would hear about the thing, because basically in the omnivore's dilemma, then, then, that's where um, the author ended up with saying that he went back to being an omnivore because if he ate uh, grass-fed beef, or basically salatin-style pasture-raised beef, mm -hmm. that there was less death down that road than if he ate a vegan diet 
provided that he's buying the ingredients from a grocery store. And he could get grass-fed beef from his local grocery store. And so that was the conclusion that he drew. But, but so did he do, did he measure death on, on uh, an individual by individual or uh, a pound per volume basis? Because one cow being killed is a heck of a lot more weight upon the yep. earth than, than a million microorganisms in a tablespoon of True. Of oh, your, your point is valid. And he did, he, he did explore that. Mm -hmm. Hence, again, Dilemma. It's it, it, It's like yeah. you know, how do you if I, if you're, I'm choosing to be a more evolved person, yeah. Then then okay, how? Because basically it's a choice, isn't it? It's it's like yeah. I want to I want to say okay, I'm going to use my intellect to make it so that um, I'm I'm going to be a better person for the world, and that and I'm going to include in that all of these animals. And so then there's the whole thing of do you include the microorganisms in there? Yeah. And and then it's like, okay, now do you do you do it by the pound or do you do it by like death by pound or do you do it exactly. death by um by individual? Yeah. And and I mean it, it gets it gets complicated. And so maybe I don't know, you can come up with an algorithm for it, but I think most people just choose a path and then in their day to day decisions they're making the best of it. And and I think that if uh if the veganic if I see the if the veganic label at um at the here in Missoula, I could I can imagine going that path. I can imagine buying that, and so just because of the fact that I, you know, I think a big thing is is that what I'd like to do is I'd like to buy food that's polyculture raised. There you go. You know, and I would think that polyculture raised food. No till polyculture there you system. Go. There, yeah. that would be that would be awesome. And so that's that's that is incredibly awesome news. I really like I really like to hear about that. That's great. Um, I uh, um, so back to um, so now we've, we've kind of covered what is veganism versus the the omnivores approach and, and why and and you know most people of course they're going to continue to eat whatever it is that they eat and they don't really give a damn about whether it's better for the earth or whatever and and you know they feel evolved because they root for one sports team and rather than the other <laughs> the, the the good one and not the bad one. <laughs> That's being evolved, and so they're good with that, and and, and which is fine. But um, uh, all right, so then we get into the space um, of now you've created this your website, Veganic Permaculture, and um, and so veganicpermaculture.com. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if if you say it three or four more times, will that will you feel better? Veganicpermaculture.com. <laughs> yes. And, and you have put a lot of stuff on that. I have. You've only had it for like, you haven't had it a month, have you? Uh, just about a month. About a month. And you've already put like 20 articles up there? I have. You are really giving that website a workout. <laughs> so uh, uh, what does veganic permaculture mean to you? Well, when I, I grew up in Montana and I started on a cattle ranch and I just, loved all the animals and I remember pulling calves because they weren't going to make it if we didn't pull them out of their mothers and we we you know rolled them around and got them to breathe and they were blue and then they they suddenly came to life and we'd saved them and wow it felt wonderful and then they grew up and we killed them and ate them <laughs> and so pretty early on they were I, yummy <laughs> pretty soon I became a, a vegetarian because I loved the horses and the cows and uh, and then 
as you say, the more time I spent watching the natural world and having this joy of watching birds and insects and all the things that that were around me, I found that I couldn't kill them. And so, yes, uh, being a, a vegan and doing veganic agriculture is a way of of asserting my love of the world. And love is an unconditional effort to keep all things alive and growing. So I think the last time you and I did a podcast together, we might have talked about your shift into the permaculture world. Yeah. And and how you're 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 um, you're in now, you know, <laughs> uh, which is kind of new too. But probably don't need to cover that too much. Um, <clears throat> but uh, um, this this whole new um, veganic thing. I, I you know when you first came to me and said that you wanted to call it veganic, my impression was is that you wanted to just you wanted to be organic without all the bullshit that comes with being <laughs> organic. You know, with all with all the government being in your face. Maybe a little more evolved organic. And so yeah, and so it's like, and if you use the word organic, confusing term in itself because basically, like if you examine organic chem- chemistry, it's like, oh, it contains carbon. It's organic, right? Right? That's right. And it's like sometimes I try to have a conversation with somebody about organic, which I think is a very low standard. And 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 then they're like talking about it contains carbon, and that's and it's like you know I'm trying to talk about not using pesticides really, mm-hmm. and and um, and I feel like I'm not getting very far, and um, and and so I feel like the 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 word itself is is really becoming kind of useless, especially as there are armies of people fighting for the value of the word, and then there's a bigger armies of people fighting to downgrade it because they can make more money if they could just, you know, take out some of the standards that come with it. But it even seems like, you know, when, when something comes across as being organic that you can buy at the store, a lot of times the quality of it is not what people 20 years ago at Rodale's were excited about. Most people have no clue what the passions are behind the word organic. It's, it's a huge word now. It has a big, big umbrella. And I think that organic is a beautiful, beautiful step along the path of becoming more and more aware of what we do when we say we're stewarding the earth. I think that there are some incredible organic farmers who are incredible stewards of the earth, and I think that we can also do more. We can always be more aware. We can always make choices that are less egotistical, meaning they think about just us, and think about other organisms or all the organisms around us. It's kind of like, you know, peeling an onion. There's more and more layers of awareness. So, you know, I think organic is a wonderful, wonderful approach, and I would choose organic anytime I could. If I could choose veganic, I would do that, and if I can do veganic permaculture, that's an even deeper awareness or an even deeper level of peeling the onion. And there's probably much deeper levels to go. I just haven't become aware of them yet. So now, like some vocabulary might not be a a bad idea to bring in right now. So so first of all, we've got conventional agriculture. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, most of the stuff you can buy at Safeway. Mm -hmm. Conventional agriculture, they'll, they'll use pesticides. Of, of all types, um, mm-hmm. and and when we say and pesticides, synthetic fertilizers, and synthetic fertilizers, when we say pesticides, we're talking about 
typically herbicides, insecticides, fungicides, miticides. Um, I mean, there's a list of sides mm -hmm. that go in there. There's chemicals that, that you could use that kill things. Insects, weeds, uh, microorganisms, and mites. Right, right. So, um, uh, and I can't think of anything to add to that, because when you say microorganisms, that's like, you know, most of the sides that I've heard mm, of. Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, yes, the, the, the chemical-based um, fertilizers. Um, and um, <clears throat> I don't know, there's, there's probably a bunch of, oh, GMOs, genetically modified organisms. Yeah. Um, there's a variety of things that they'll use. Then we have organic, which by today's standards is now you basically take the conventional system and you tweak it just as little as possible until you qualify for organic. Does that seem accurate to you? I, again, there's a huge umbrella over over the term organic. So there are people at one end of the umbrella who are trying to create a, a systems approach. They're trying to create an ecosystem that is organic where, where things are, where all organisms are, are respected. And then there are folks on the other end who have been conventional farmers and are trying to do gotcha. what we call input substitution. They're trying to use the same inputs, but now they would be organic inputs. So they're not trying to create a self-contained ecosystem. They're trying to add things, but now they want them to be organic. A funny story, I've just been doing some consulting with a large farm in Colorado, and we are going to do actual veganic fertility management because the manure is not available. We need to do plant-based amendments because this year the cost of synthetic nitrogen fertilizer is so high that a lot of conventional <laughs> growers are competing in Colorado for the manure. And, and hence the organic growers don't have as much manure available. And so we need to find another way of adding nitrogen to the soil that's plant-based. So, isn't that interesting? <laughs> that is. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. So, um, uh, continuing up the scale, we've got conventional. We have organic. Then we have sustainable, which means barely not dead. <laughs> so everybody's like, "Oh, I want to. I want to be sustainable. I want to be barely not dead. <laughs> just how can I be just barely staying alive? I'm. I'm all for sustainable." So sustainable is like this big hot word now in the eco circles, and it's kind of like, ah, can we go a little bit past that, please? And and just past that, we have permaculture. And now I'm I'm shooting frequently on on permies.com, and as, as as well as you know a lot of the other things that I go and I work on, I'm trying to shoot for something past that. And I and I kind of think that you know, with with a word like veganic, maybe you know, because I I do think that the people from the 70s or whatever that were that started with the word organic, that that they were well beyond sustainable. That they were like, they were about systems feeding systems feeding systems, and about you know how this all works together. Um, and and I and I kind of think a lot of that kind of got lost along the way. And so perhaps. This word, veganic, can represent, you know, bring that back, bring back, you know, some kind of something where we're going beyond sustainable. And I do think that permaculture is, is like right now, I mean, we've got biodynamic also, 
which adds a more spiritual element, but it, there's a lot of similarities between biodynamic and, and permaculture. Um, so I, I, I do think that permaculture is going to be doing a lot of soil building, and it, and, and it is polyculture based, which I think is one of the big keys. You know, um, park the tractor. I mean, I think, uh, you know, of course, like Stepholzer still uses a tractor, but it's like it's, for, it's, it's a different thing. It's not the same. So um, I'm not sure where I was going with that. Oh, yeah, what does veganic permaculture even mean? That's what I was going with that. And so I, I, I do kind of think that um, uh, it's impressive to hear about that. I hope that, that whoever it is that, that controls the word veganic, that it will include polyculture, and it'll be, you know, well beyond whatever is currently being called organic. Hopefully it means something beyond sustainable. I mean, I think that uh, there's desperately in need of a word for what's beyond sustainable. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, of course, permaculture. Hell, we're always going on about permaculture. Absolutely. Permanent soil cover, permanent plant material in the soil, absolutely. That would be part of uh, veganic agriculture, or certainly part of veganic permaculture. All right. Anything else about veganism? No, I okay. think that that's it. So the next, the next piece we've got today, the last piece that we have today, is about natives. Native plants? Native plants. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, I, you know, Boy, there's just so many different things that come up, but I, I, I kind of feel like um, when I present about permaculture, it seems like about one presentation out of five, uh, there's somebody in the audience who wants to stand up and talk about native. And I'd say, and then basically they're very emphatic that they will permit me to do permaculture provided that I only plant natives and I do not use the non-natives which is awkward because I don't remember them being my boss. <laughs> and and uh, um, I, I usually call them names and show them the door. But um, uh, I do believe that there, you know, that there is a, a melding here and there is a lot to you know, value in understanding natives. Another perspective I sometimes hear is that anybody with a shovel or a plow or who wants to do anything agriculture-esque or even a garden needs to piss off and leave the land alone, that the land will take care of itself, you should just leave nature alone, and we should all back away and, I don't know, I suppose die. But, um, you know, basically, you know, leave it alone. Everybody get away. Everybody, you know, walk away. Um, <clears throat> I, I have my own frustrations with the native folks, and, it's, it's, and, and as much as I feel like I have tremendous respect for, uh, um, you know, native plants, and, and I wish to, you know, I, I, I do work to bring them in and work with them and, and have them be part of my systems that I design, I have a hard time with a lot of the people that advocate natives. And... Um, I wanted, and I know that you have a huge knowledge of native plants, and how dare you grow tomatoes? Because <laughs> I don't believe tomatoes are native to Montana, are they? No, nope, they're not. And so don't you have all your friends that are proto-native come at you with, you know, the, the, the tar, the feathers, the pitchforks, the torches? 
most of my uh, native plant friends, I, I dated um, one of the premier native plant people in Montana, and he used to call my farm a sacrifice zone. Um, but he really liked the vegetables because <laughs> uh, he was a vegetarian as well. Um, so I think it's a balance. I think it's uh, a challenging balance. And again, it's one that I don't think we should be complacent about. We need to continue to expand our awareness and question our choices and see how complex we can allow the systems we live in to, to be, meaning that complexity is is increased when we let other things live and we don't try to homogenize it all down to humans being the only ones that get to survive. That being said, clearly if we all were hunter-gatherers at this population level, it, it what wouldn't work. So we have agriculture because we started living in cities and concentrating. So unless we diminish the population significantly, and, and actually, personally, I'm, I'm for that. I, I do think we should Will you be at the first in line? Uh, I didn't have children. I was careful not to bring children into the world so that I wouldn't add to the human population. But um, they do say, you know, all my friends tease that true environmentalists kill themselves. And I guess I'm not quite there. <laughs> but I, I do want to make choices about diminishing my consumption as much as possible, and hence why I'm doing the veganic permaculture. Dot native, com. Dot com. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of native plants, uh, yes, I've studied them and grown them for the last 20 years, and, and I love native plant systems, and I think it's really important to leave wild places. I also think that we shouldn't have polar opposites, wild places and then horribly, horribly cultivated places. I think it's good to merge them together and that we can farm and we can live our lives in a way that allows wild spaces to permeate and be on the borders of our cultivated spaces. So uh, one of the things that I'm exploring on my website and that others have explored is this whole idea of, uh, of a forest garden, a, a, a permaculture that relies on on woody plants that, that produce fruits and nuts. And I think that can be a really important addition to a native plant system. So you have natives, and then you maybe move closer to civilization, and you have a forest garden. And then closer to civilization, and you have more cultivated grains and, and vegetables. And you move out from the civilization and you move towards more and more complexity till you get into wild places where, where we're the visitors. And then in the forest gardens, perhaps the wild things come and visit more and more. I think it's a balance is what I'm saying. And I think that we don't want to give up on native systems, but I guess we've got to eat and feed ourselves as well. So how can we do that in a way that is most respectful and makes us the best stewards? I, I think that's a great point. And, and you, know, you earlier you mentioned that you, uh, you had like a, a boyfriend or something like that, and, and he was like eating the food off of your, 
what did he call your place? The sacrifice a zone. A sacrifice zone. Mm -hmm. So if he didn't have a sacrifice zone, I'm kind of curious what he did eat. I mean, did he actually eat everything that was, um, you know, a wild, a native wild food? No, no. he did not. And, and so then, you know, I kind of wonder about these folks that are so powerfully advocating that, because it's like, I'll go and I'll talk about an agriculture system, and I think what I'm doing is I'm saying, rather than have this 100 acres of monocrop wheat, what do you say we have 100 different crops all growing all mixed together here? And the wild things can visit that area. You bet. Absolutely. And then the native people are like, no, that's unacceptable because some of the things you'll be raising there are not native. And, and it's kind of like, uh, well, you know, there'll be some natives in there. Um, but, uh, but, you know, and, and the fact that you're finding it unacceptable, I, I, I have to, these people never seem to answer the question of where does your food come from? If, if, it's, if we're talking about unacceptable, where does your food come from? Um, I, I want to, uh, I think Toby Hemingway had a, a really interesting take on this in that when, when he, and in fact, apparently a few years ago, there was some kind of gathering in Portland, Oregon, where it was like the native folks and the permaculture folks were going to come together and resolve everything once and for all. And, and apparently Toby was at the center of it. And, um, uh, and in his book, Gaia's Garden, um, he has like, I think a whole chapter dedicated to what does native mean and, and, um, and, and the whole native thing in the world of permaculture. Um, and if I recall correctly, it's been a long time since I've read it, but if I recall correctly, his, his whole point was native to when? And, and that the idea is, is that if you're going to say, okay, this is a native plant, then you've got to pick a point in the timeline. And, and usually around here, it seems to be 1805. That's when Lewis and Clark came through. So, in eight, so then you're picking like, okay, what was here in 1805? And so it's like this, this picture of what was happening then. But then if you turn time back a 1,000 years, there's probably 100 species of plants that didn't exist here a 1,000 years ago. And so you could have said native to a 1,000 years ago, and then there's a whole bunch of things that are currently being considered as natives that were, at some point in the last 1,000 years, they were the invasives. They, they came in and they outcompeted a bunch of stuff because, you know, they had gumption or whatever it was, and, and then they were, they were out competing. I mean, um, 10,000 years ago, there was nothing here. It was mud and rock because the glaciers had just moved out. And because we're in Missoula, our glaciers moved out and wiped out all kinds of other places. <laughs> we, we kicked ass all over the Pacific Northwest, just crushed them with our glaciery goodness. <laughs> so, but in the meantime, all that was left here was a bunch of mud and rocks. And then uh, different kinds of things started to pop up. And in the beginning, there probably weren't too many things, not a lot of diversity. And those things were, well, one could say invasive. And then later, something else came in, and it was invasive, and it outcompeted those things. It was so damn invasive. And then more and more. Now, granted, now here we are in year 2011, and um, homogenous, what, a, what a, a great word that you used a moment ago, and, and so we're getting plants from all over the world, and it's like everything's showing up. And um, uh, granted, we don't really want that. That's going to screw up everything and, and make things even harder than it is already. So we want to somehow slow that down, 
there's no way we can stop it. But we can, you know, try to slow it down a little bit. But then the other thing is, is like, are we going to slow it down and like really, you know, force everybody to like, if you've got one speck of this plant, then you face a million dollar fine because you weren't out policing your land, finding this plant and getting rid of it. Um, my point is, is, is the whole thing that Toby had. I, I like what Toby had to say about native to win, and that, and that basically everybody who's, who's advocating native at this point is saying. The point is 1805, and, um, uh, and and right now we're experiencing invasives throughout Montana that are doing horrible, terrible things, and and um, and it's debatable about whether whether uh, they would have was their getting here accelerated by white folks showing up, probably like. When we talk about knapweed, it's probably the most famous weed in this area that's an invasive right now, which comes from Russia. Um, it probably would have gotten here eventually anyway and been an invasive like it is now, only it was accelerated by humans. And so now we're fighting it. I mean, um, it, 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 it seems inappropriate to find somebody or spray all their land because they have some knapweed on it. Um, and I, and I don't think it's something where we can require people to eliminate all non-native species from their land. I mean, wheat, for example. We're sitting next to a wheat field right now. I mean, I don't think it's appropriate that we could say, you can't grow wheat in Montana because it's not a native. Anyway, so now I'm just, I'm just <laughs> maybe we're all done with the native section now because I ranted, I did my thing, I conveyed my bit. You know what, I need to get Toby as a podcasty at some point. That'd be good. I, I think that that you may have simplified it just a tad. I, I think there are native folks like any cause that are very assertive about natives only and black and white. And I think that really it boils down to just what we talked about when we were discussing veganic versus organic, and that's complexity. That if you look at an ecosystem that is moving towards more complexity, there's usually a balance and a, and, a, and a diversity of plants. Usually, not always. There are some old, older ecosystems that are, are you know, not very diverse, like a Douglas fir forest up, up one of these canyons in the Bitterroot, for example. But in general, most of the ecosystems that are relatively sustainable have great biological diversity and complexity. And what happens with some of the non-native invasives is that they move into the system and they homogenize the complexity. And, and so that is a bad thing when we diminish complexity in general. And I think that's one way of, of trying to find the balance between humans eating and all the other organisms get to eat because they prefer a native system as opposed to a, a more, more cultivated system. And then within that, the balance is finding a way to do agriculture where we then have space for other organisms, where the wildness is allowed to come into 
our systems of food production without entirely destroying it. So if we can just remember complexity and balance, maybe we don't have to rant so much. <laughs> I like the idea of not ranting so much. <clears throat> I, I also think if somebody wants to say that uh, I have to pull all the non-natives out of my stuff, that I'd at least like it if they were, like their diet was made 100% of native foods. I think that that's fair and reasonable to ask. <laughs> all right. Anything else you want to talk about today? I think we're all talked out. Do you want to mention your, don't you have a website or something? I think I do, <laughs> indeed. You're not I, sure? I, it, <laughs> it, it, it comes to mind as veganic permaculture.com. Veganic mm. is just like organic, but with a V. Veganicpermaculture.com. <laughs> okay. okay. All right. So um, if you like this sort of thing, come on out to the forums at permies.com, where Helen sometimes hangs out. <laughs> yeah. And we talk about uh, organic stuff and native stuff and composting and homesteading and permaculture all the time.